We come to the last division of the book of Isaiah, and the next several chapters are going to describe the glorious kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom that's talked about in the New Testament when Jesus likens the kingdom of God to several things. The word glory in all of its various forms are going to be found 23 times in the next six chapters. And so one of the things that I would challenge you to do, if you're one of those people who mark in your Bible to underline that word glory and glorious, or to make a mental note, or or write down, or somehow note the presence of, of that word glory. When Isaiah wrote these words, the kingdom of Judea and the city of Jerusalem had only a few short generations left. Judea would fall to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem would be sacked. The temple would be destroyed. Its citizens would be taken to Babylon. And when the Babylonian captivity came to a close, there was certainly no glory in Judea. There was no glory in Jerusalem. There was no glory in what seemed like their failed circumstances. And I'm sure that they asked themselves this question. What will be my end? What will be the end of my family? What will be the end of human history? And in every generation, we've all asked that question. At what point will my life come to a close? At what point will my family's presence end? At what point will God close the book called human history? Well, the Bible teaches that before that happens, the Messiah will come. The Messiah will establish his throne and the seat of government will be the holy city of Jerusalem. It will become the capital of the entire world and peace and prosperity and security and righteousness will fill the earth. And the prelude to peace will be a day of judgment. You've heard me say often that grace precedes judgment. We live in a time of grace. We live in a time of invitation and and expectation. But the prelude to peace will be a day of vengeance, a day of judgment, where the Lord will execute judgment on the wicked. The next several chapters are truly a peek into the future. I know that some of you watch the History Channel, but imagine there was such a thing called the Future Channel. And this would be it. This would be the future channel because in it we see the future of Jerusalem, the the future of the holy city during Messiah's reign, the future of salvation, the future day of God's vengeance, the future day of God's mercy. And some see in chapters 63 and 64 a picture of Armageddon. In the final chapters, chapter 65 and 66, we will see the last days of human history. So in chapter 66, we're going to go through it, the holy city, the light and glory of God's presence in the first five verses, the holy city, the center of worship and human commerce in verses 6 through 10, the holy city, the gates of salvation in verses 11 through 14, the holy city, the capital of Messiah's kingdom on the earth. We're sometimes thrown off by the language of Isaiah. In our study of Isaiah, I've told you that it is poetry, isn't it? It's poetry, but it's also prophecy. It's poetry, it is prophecy, but it is also promise. Promises are made and promises will be kept. And here's the ultimate promise. God will bring to fruition and conclusion, his plans, and his purposes. Now, he writes in the present tense as if the prophecy has already been fulfilled. And that sometimes throws us off. That we lose something in the translation. Because when, it's, when we're talking in the present tense, we seem to think that, well, then this is happening now. But the prophetic present tense is a confident form of writing in the Old Testament because the prophet writes 
as if the certainty of the promise is so certain that it has already come to pass. I heard an amazing story about losing something in translation. There was a man named Juan Rivera. And on the other side of the Mexican border, he robbed a bank and he stole a bunch of money and he went across the border into Mexico and he went deep into the territory and they sent a great big Texas Ranger to go find Juan Rivera. And this big old Texas Ranger, he crosses the border and he he pursues the bank robber and he finally finds him in a little Pueblo in a bar and in this bar... There's only just a few people. And he goes, I'm looking for Juan Rivera. And he comes up to this man and he says, are you Juan Rivera? And he goes, no, that man over there, he's Juan Rivera. So he walks up to the other man and he says, are you Juan, Juan Rivera? He goes, si, sí, me llamo Juan Rivera. ¿Quién quiere saber? I don't understand what you're saying. Pues yo no hablo inglés. I don't speak any English. And the guy says, well, maybe I can help you out. And he says, you tell Juan Rivera, I know that he stole the money in that bank. And unless he tells me where that money is, I'm going to shoot him on the spot. And so the man says to Juan Rivera in Spanish, this man is the gringo sheriff. He's come here and he says, unless you tell him where the money is, he is going to shoot you on the spot. And so Juan Rivera says, okay, I will tell you where the money is. Here's what you do. You leave town. You go. You take the trail that heads east. And you come to a well. And when you come to a well, there will be a great big cement cistern. You open the cistern. And there will be a hole. And in that hole, there will be money bags. There will be money bags. And that is where the money is. And the man turned to the sheriff and he said, He said, I would rather die than tell you where the stinky money is. Kind of lost something in the translation. Part of the challenge that we have is to actually say what it's going to say to us. Listen carefully. I'm going to read the first five verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people and the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So when the passage begins, arise, get up, shine, for your light has come. The glory, oh, there's that word, the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The command is to arise from the dust of mourning. Remember, they are, they've been in warning. Remember, throughout the book of Isaiah, Judah has received prophecies. There's been foreign prophecies, warnings and, pro- and promises. There's been the historical section. There has been the, the sadness of the reality that Judah would be destroyed and Jerusalem would be destroyed and, and people would be killed and the nation would be scattered. And rightfully, they are in a sense of depression and mourning. Just like some of you. Because of illness or circumstances or pain or setbacks, you experience and you wonder if the circumstance that you find yourself in is going to alter the plan of God for your life. And so the command is to arise from the dust of mourning, and he says, For your light has come. And we know who the light is. The light is the suffering servant. The light is the Messiah. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The word glory, by the way, in the the Hebrew language, it's it's the Hebrew word kabod or kabod. The word itself means weight or substance. 
The word glory was a word that was used to describe the wealth of a king. He would wear a crown on his head. And remember, gold is the the heaviest substance. And, And so when you wear a crown of gold, you wear the weight of the crown of gold. And so the word glory meant substantive. It even in the Hebrew, to the Hebrew people, it came to mean real. And so the glory of the Lord is the reality. It is the weight. It is the certainty of those things. And it says, shine. And you know what that word means, the second word, arise and shine. Shine means that you reflect the light. And reflecting the light that has been given to you by the Lord's Messiah. And so when it says, get up and shine, the idea is that the the period of depression and mourning is over and, and the time to reflect the glory of God in your heart and in your lips and in your life is now to take place. And by the way, the glory isn't simply the... The Shekinah. You've heard of the Shekinah or the Shekinah. Remember, that was the cloud of glory in the, in the ancient times and in the Old Testament when the tabernacle in the wilderness was beat going from place to place. You remember the story of how God told Moses to construct the Ark of the Covenant and on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat and on the mercy seat there were two angels, cherubim, whose, whose wings touched and on the mercy seat the presence or the Shekinah or the, the presence of, of the Lord was, the glory dwelt on the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. Remember it was that presence of the Lord that filled the temple when Solomon built it. It was that thick cloud of the very presence of God. But here, it isn't just a pillar, a fire. It isn't just a cloud. It isn't just a symbol. When he says, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, the implication is that the very presence of God is with you. By the way, when did that happen? Well, obviously, when the Messiah came. Remember, there's a reason why he was called Emmanuel. God with us. The real God of heaven took on a human form and tabernacled. John says he pitched his tent among us and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. You'll remember that the glory of the Lord departed the temple before its destruction. That story is found in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. But the glory of the Lord would return to the temple when the temple was rebuilt in Ezekiel chapter 43. And so, again, in verse 2 it says, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and His Glory, there's that word again, shall be seen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth. And you'll remember in the opening chapter of the, of the book of Genesis, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the world was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The world began in darkness. The world was in Gross darkness. By the way, one of the very definitions of darkness is the absence of light, isn't it? The world was absent the presence of God. The world was absent the character of God. And there was a dark wickedness that pervaded the planet. Darkness becomes a, a euphemism. For the absence of the presence of the Lord. The very presence of the Lord carries with it the idea of light. No wonder Jesus in the New Testament would say, I am the light of the world. The whole earth would receive light. The Lord shall arise upon you. That is, the Lord will arise upon Israel and his glory will be seen in you. The promise that Isaiah gives is that the Messiah will literally show up 
in Israel and with the presence of the Messiah, it would be like a gigantic spiritual torch. A furnace is lit and it is so bright that it illuminates the entire world. No wonder John would write, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So the light spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, was recognized in the New Testament as the coming of the Messiah. And in verse 3 it says, And the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The idea being Jesus doesn't come simply for the Jew, but he comes also for the Gentile. And the word Gentile in the Old Testament always typically carries with it the idea of nations. So the Goim, the Gentiles, are the nations. They shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4, lift up your eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at your side. In the opening portion of chapter 60 verse 4 where it says the lifting up or lift up your eyes round about and see the person who's being told to lift their eyes is Jerusalem it's the city it's the holy city of Jerusalem here Jerusalem is used in a poetic sense in a metaphorical sense like a woman who has lost her children. Her children have been taken from her. She's been bereaved of her children. And so the prophet encourages her, stop looking down. Start looking up. Lift up your eyes. And guess what you're going to see? You're going to see your scattered children returning. And you know where they're they're going to? They're going back to you. Now, you've got to understand what a powerful promise that would have been for the children of Israel who were taken captive and who find themselves mourning by the river Euphrates. Judah is destroyed. The temple is gone. And they're scattered throughout what was the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. And sometimes you feel exactly the same way. Your life is a mess. Your life is in shambles. Whatever plan or purpose that God may have had for you, it just seems like it can't happen. And and then all of a sudden, the Lord begins to speak to you and the, the Lord begins to communicate with you and the Lord begins to tell you, I'm going to fulfill the plan and I'm going to fulfill the purpose and I'm going to fulfill the promise that I've made to you. Lift up your eyes. Your children are going to go back to Jerusalem. The children will go back from their captivity. They're going to restore the walls. They're going to build the city. They're going to build the temple, but most importantly, with the building of the walls and with the building of the temple, they're going to restore the worship of God. In the end, when you find yourself in the dark place, in the place of bondage, whether the bondage takes the form of Whatever bondage you happen to be in bondage to, bondage successfully impedes your ability to worship, doesn't it? That's what captivity and bondage does. But God has a plan and a purpose. He wants to restore worship. And look at verse 5. It says, Then you shall see and flow together, and your heart shall fear and be enlarged. That is, in a reverential way. Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted to you. The forces of the the Gentiles shall come to you. Here, the idea in verse 5, when it says, Then you shall see and flow together, and your heart will, will have reverential awe and be expanded. The abundance of the sea refers to the wealth of the distant lands as in the time of Solomon. When Solomon was building the temple, the king of Tyre said, I'm going to send you wood. The other king sent gold and silver and all of a sudden goods and materials started coming from Egypt in the south and from Babylon in the east and from Tyre in the north and Assyria. And all of the nations began to gather together as they recognized the reality of the presence of this great King Solomon. 
Well, guess what? The abundance is going to return. The abundance of the sea, again, refers to the wealth of the distant lands. The nations make their wealth available to the restored community to restore Jerusalem. And by the way, in history, the king of Persia would make a great deal of materials available for the rebuilding of the wall and and rebuilding of the city. You can imagine when um, Cyrus uh, issues the decree to return and rebuild, he also gives Nehemiah sort of a blank check. Hey, whatever you need in order to accomplish the rebuilding of the walls, it's on me. In history that took place, but then also there seems to be a prophetic implication that this will take place again in the future. In Messiah's kingdom, where there is a a movement and a restoration. So some people might ask, did the return of the people from captivity during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra Did that fulfill this prophecy in chapter 60? In part, but only partially. Because it would seem that there is unfinished prophecies and unfinished promises and unfinished fulfillments that will take place in a future kingdom. We also see the holy city becoming the center of worship and human Commerce. Look at verse 6. It says, The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. And they shall bring gold and incense. And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord in verse 6. What I need you to do is, at this point, put up the map of the Middle East. Because I want to show you some of the the places that we're talking about. When it says in verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and the Ephah, all all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. In the ancient world, camels were like long-haul truckers. But camels during that time were sort of like the 18-wheelers. And they would deliver goods and services and supplies. And we also know from the Old Testament that camels were also used for bringing tribute, according to 1 Kings chapter 10. So now they come with rich offerings to the Lord God. By the way, Midian was the land that stretched from Edom. Now, if you're looking at the map, Edom would be that little stretch of land that you call Jordan. As a matter of fact, if you look to the right of the very bottom of Israel and you look to the Jordan and then you go all the way down, Edom stretched from the northwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. This was called, these were the Midianites. So Midian was the land that stretched from Edom or the Jordan near the northwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. So that was the kingdom of the Midianites. And you'll remember that Moses' father-in-law was from Midian. And so that was his kingdom. Ephah was a descendant of Abraham. He was one of the sons of Keturah after the death of Sarah. He was associated with Midian. Sheba was that area that you and I would call Southwest Arabia. So if you go to the bottom part of Saudi Arabia in that place that you see there called Yemen, that would have been part of the area that you and I would call, well, Yemen and Saudi Arabia. That was the area of Sheba. And, of course, it was famous for its trade in gold and frankincense. But for the children of Israel who were reading the passage, they would have thought about the glory days of Solomon when the queen of Sheba visited Jerusalem and brought gifts. And then in verse 7 it says, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboah shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar. And I will glorify The house of my glory. There's that word again, glory. And remember what glory means. 
It is the weight and the substance. It is the reality of the presence of the very real God. Now, Kedar was located on the southern Arabian desert and then eastward towards Mesopotamia, or what again, what we would call part of modern-day Jordan and Iraq. Neboath was the son of Ishmael. He was the brother-in-law of Edom, Edom, and he was the father of the Nabataeans. And their capital was the rock city of Petra, Selah. So again, it's in where modern Amman is. Now, what's the point of all of this? These people were the traditional enemies of Israel and Jerusalem. They are now fully, gladly, wonderfully, voluntarily coming to Jerusalem, offering sacrifices and praise and worshiping the true and the living God. Did that happen during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? No. Did it happen from the time of the Persian Empire to the time of Alexander's conquest to the time of the Roman occupation? No. Has it ever happened even up until the modern time? Do you see Jordanians and and Saudi Arabians going to Jerusalem? Now, there are Jordanians and Saudi Arabians who go to the Temple Mount. But are they there to worship the true and the living God? No. Will there come a time when they will? The answer is yes. When will this happen? It will happen in Messiah's kingdom. And look what it says in verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? In verse 8, the prophet sees a vision. And the vision is a fleet of ships, but it could be planes from distant lands. In other words, in the prophet's vision, he says, who are these who fly like a cloud? By the way, the mode of transportation during the time of the 7th century B.C. is you walked or you went on a ship. In the 7th century B.C., did people fly in the air? No. Did they fly in the air in the 1st century A.D.? When did people start flying? In the 20th century with Orville and Wilbur Flight. But by the time of the establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948, um, flights became a little more popular, but certainly not common. But in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, planes from Russia and planes from Europe and planes from North America and planes from South America and planes from Africa began to bring Jews back to the land. He sees a vision from distant lands. Distant lands bringing people to Israel. They're likened to clouds that float across the sky. Isn't that an amazing picture? The prophecy and the promise is that the children of Israel return from everywhere, Sheba to the south and Tarshish to the west. Tarshish was the area where the pillars of Hercules met in the southern peninsula of Spain where the continent of Africa and Europe meet. That that was Tarshish. And in verse 9, look what it says. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me. Remember what the coastlands are? These are the foreign lands, the distant lands. The coastlands meaning they will wait for me. The idea being they're waiting for the Messiah. And the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. In the 1940s, actually even before the 1940s, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, a group of Jewish people, they were called Sephardim. These were Spaniard Jews, made their way back through the Mediterranean and returned to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. There's that word again. The point, 
Sheba to the south, Tarshish to the west. The picture of the vision of Isaiah is that people are coming from all over the world to gather back in Jerusalem to bring your sons. I think there's two ways of looking at that particular passage. To bring your sons. Are these actual offspring of Jacob? Are these Jews? I think the answer is yes. But you know who else I believe that it is? The offspring of Abraham by faith. Who are the children of faith? The children of faith are all of those people who embrace the the faith of Abraham. And the, the faith of Isaac and the faith of Jacob. It certainly isn't Judaism. It is the Lord Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the promise. It is what the Lord has done for Israel that makes the people want to worship him. And and again, here is the vision that, that Isaiah has. The vision isn't Gentiles coming from all over the world to visit the Holy Land. Now, we love to visit the Holy Land, don't we? And when we were, and I'm looking at several of you, you were in the Holy Land with me. You were in the Holy Land with me. When we were walking the streets of Jerusalem, were there people from Africa? Were there people from Asia? Were there Japanese people there? There were people, there, there were people from Africa and Nigeria. There were people from all over the world walking the streets of Jerusalem. But Israel's not the attraction. The Messiah this prophecy. And look what it says in verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I will have mercy on you. The sons of the foreigners shall build your walls. These are the kings who oppressed them, and the kings who destroyed them. Now those very kings will participate in the very restoration of the land and the people. The nations bring the wealth to Zion, the city of David, the captives to Zion, but they serve in Jerusalem. And look at verse 11. The holy city, the gates of salvation. It says in verse 11, Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. In the ancient times, in the city of David, and and again, for those of you who got to go to, to, to Israel with me in Jerusalem, we walked around the walls, and around the walls there are gates. Remember, there's the golden gate, and there's the sheep gate, and there's the dung gate. There's all of these gates that surround the city and as, and you would come into the gate and that's where you buy and sell. And when the gates of the city is open, the presence of an open gate means that we are at peace. When do you close the door? It's when you're at war. And look what it says. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. You know what that means? Permanent peace. It means permanent peace. For the Jews who returned from Babylon, there was a limited peace. Oh, they had some skirmishes and they had some run-ins with people. But they didn't have peace by any stretch of the imagination. From the time that the city and the walls were built, they had still problems. They had problems with the Greeks and Alexander the Great. They had problems with the generals from the Greek Empire. They had problems to the north. They had problems to the south. They had problems to the east. By the way, did the gates of Jerusalem close in the modern era? Remember? In 1967, when the war broke out, they had to close the gates of the city because they were at war. The gates were open when we were there because there was peace. But in Messiah's kingdom, that's the promise. The gates never close. When Jesus comes, the gate will be open and it will remain open to all. You know why that's important to you? Because it isn't just a prophecy of a future kingdom when the Messiah shows up. The reality is the door of salvation is thrown open to you. John, in in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and, and I knock. The 
gate is the citadel in your own heart that keeps you from understanding and receiving Jesus. But when you throw open the door, He comes to you. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the door. He says, I am the gate. He is the sheep gate. Remember, He is the good shepherd who who places Himself across the gate so that He can tend the sheep. The door of salvation is open. What prevents anyone from coming to the Lord? Their own unbelief. Their own stubbornness. Some of you were stubborn for a very long time, weren't you? God knocked at the door, but you stubbornly wouldn't let Him in. The Lord knocked at the door, but you closed the gate. The Lord knocked at the door, but you turned the television off. The Lord knocked at the door, but you turned the radio off. The Lord knocked at the door, but you closed your Bible. And then one day you opened it. And the Lord came in. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the gate. Every human being can cross the threshold into the very presence of God. See, this is what's exciting. Yes, the real, true Jesus will really return and establish a rule in a kingdom. But what's interesting to me is you don't have to wait for the second coming of Jesus to experience peace and the presence of God in your heart. All you have to do is just throw open the gate. Stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I will come into him and I'll have fellowship with him. Every human being can cross the threshold into his presence, in his name. There's a stupid, stupid, stupid television show on called Hollywood Access. I know that most of you would never demean yourselves in such a way as to watch it. But for some reason, people love this show. Hollywood Access. Because they want to brush up next to the stars. They want to brush up next to the celebrities. For some reason, people think that the celebrity life is glamorous and exciting. Hollywood access. But the Lord offers eternal access to Messiah's kingdom. You know, it was a thrill to be able to have uh, the future king of Malawi here. And I remember thinking to myself, well, how do you act in the presence of, you know, a crown prince who might one day be the head of state of his country? How do you act around him? How do you act around a, a king? And the reality is, you have access into God's presence through God's Messiah, Jesus. And access is granted only when a person acknowledges and recognizes and honors the truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the truth, access into God's presence, and then access into God's kingdom is only granted if a person repents and turns from their sin, but then receives Jesus, and now you have access to the kingdom. You don't just brush up against the stars. You brush up against the eternal creator of the heavens and the earth who occupies eternity and who will sit on a fixed throne that will last forever and all of the kings in all of the ages will bow to him. Reluctantly or purposely. But that's why the New Testament says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The nations will fear. That's what it says in verse 12. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined, it says in verse 12. The idea being that the nations, the Gentile nations and kingdoms that refuse to come under the rule and reign of the future Messiah, they won't last, and the nations shall be utterly ruined. There will be two kinds of nations in the kingdom age. Those that submit and those that don't. Jesus will be king and he will be Lord. And in verse 13, it says, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. There's that word again. 
You know, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 17, it says, And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. There's a promise and a provision for those who come, and there's a promise of deprivation for those who don't. The glory, by the way, of Lebanon are her trees. The trees will be used to rebuild the sanctuary. In verse 14, it says, Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing down to you. So the cypress, the the tree, the box tree, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, the idea being, here's the, the idea, if I could just be blunt. Everything about Messiah's kingdom will be better. Everything will be better. Everything will be more glorious. And in verse 14, also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Here's part of the the context. The Bible says over and over and over again, at the end of time, Jerusalem will become an offense. A stumbling stone, a rock of offense. The nations will gather and they'll all hate Jerusalem and blame Jerusalem for the problem and the pain and the division. But there will come a time when Messiah comes and the people will gather from around the world and they will gladly come. The Gentile nations will worship the Lord. They were cut off because of God's judgments, but now they're they're grafted in. They recognize Israel's God. They recognize Israel's Messiah. They recognize the Holy One. And again in verse 14, And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Is this the literal city or is this a figurative city? Is this a metaphor? Is this poetry? Is this a promise? My answer might shock you and surprise you. In my own view, the real Jerusalem that you and I know as Jerusalem will be the real capital of a real Messiah who really comes from heaven to the earth to rule and reign. Now that upsets some people, but I really believe that. And I believe that the heavens and the earth will pass away. And that God will create a new heaven and and a new earth and there will be a new Jerusalem wherein dwells righteousness and it will be the permanent dwelling place of the Messiah and his constant companions. That's you. But you know what's the most important thing about this place? This holy city? It isn't just simply the physical location or even the spiritual location in the future, but the reality of a culture of salvation that God brings through the Messiah. Now, do you understand about culture? Did any of you take fundamental sociology when you were in college? I'm going to put on my professorial hat just for a moment. If I were to ask you, class, what constitutes culture? What constitutes culture? class, art, language, art, language, what else constitutes culture? What makes the Italian culture different from the French culture, different from the Spanish culture, different from the Hebrew culture? Art, science, language, architecture, it's those things that that are that uniquely and distinctly make a culture distinct. What is the culture of salvation? What is the culture of the Messiah? What is the art of the Messiah? What is the language of the Messiah? What is it that makes Christians different from the non-Christian? What is it that makes a covenantal person different from a non-covenantal person? What is the culture of salvation? culture of salvation is the language of love. That's what you speak. You speak the language of love. Now, of course, the Italian people believe that theirs is the language of love. 
But the true language of love comes from the person whose heart and speech, the way you think about life and love and learning, that's what it's talking about. It's a, it's a culture of salvation. In verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. There was a time between the destruction of the temple that the land was so barren and empty that no one wanted to go there. The land was desolate. It was a swamp. No one wanted to go to Israel. No one wanted to go to Judah. No one wanted to go to Jerusalem. But the Lord promises that He's going to restore the land. And look what it says in verse 16. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. Now you might read that and go, I don't understand that passage. Well, let me help you out. The immediate fulfillment takes place under the Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. The references to the city's maintenance program, the city's upkeep and provision and support. It's going to come from the nations of the world. So when it says, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and the milk of the breasts of the kings, it's a picture, a metaphorical picture and a poetic picture that the nations of the world will sustain the city. And listen carefully, the same way that a mother sustains her child. The idea being that the nations will love Jerusalem. The way that a mother loves her child and brings her child close to her her breast and she nurses next to the very breast of her mother. The nations will love them. They will nourish them. They will care for the city because this is the place where the light and the glory of God's presence dwells because this is the seat of human government. This is the seat of economy. This is the seat of rebellion, or not rebellion, but redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And who's the ruler? Look at his name. Your Savior. Any person who's ever read the New Testament knows what that means. Who is your Savior? It's Jesus. You will call his name Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. The Redeemer. Do you know why Jesus is called the Redeemer? Do you know what that word Redeemer means? It was a Hebrew word that spoke of a close kinsman who purchased something that was taken and bought it back. You were purchased. You were redeemed. He is the Redeemer. Where were you in bondage and what were you enslaved to? Sin. He bought you out of the marketplace of sin. Have you ever bought or sold real estate? And the real estate agent says to you, it's off the market. It's unavailable. When Jesus purchased you, he took you off the market. You are unavailable to Satan. You're unavailable to sin. You're unavailable for hell. Sorry, devil. You're unavailable. You've been taken off the market. That's what that means. The mighty one of Jacob. Who is the mighty one of Jacob? He's the ladder that was revealed in Bethel. The bridge between heaven and earth. Everyone knows it's Jesus. He's the one who's removed the darkness and the sin and the death. And look what it says in verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Here is the idea. Everything about Messiah's kingdom will be more beautiful. It will be more wealthy. It will be more stunning. The city will be built from the most precious materials that are available. Do you remember Jurassic Park, that movie with the dinosaur? And the guy would come out and he would say, we spared no expense. In Jerusalem, they will spare no expense. 
and the officers are peace and the magistrates righteous. There's no corruption. There's no war. There's no attempt to overthrow the government. There's no threat of nuclear annihilation. There's no roadside bombings. There's no terrorist attacks. There's no murder. There's no oppression. So there's nothing for the media to broadcast. ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, they're all out of business. A perfect Savior will rule. That's what it means in verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Justice in from Minamar. 20,000 people destroyed. Tens of thousands of people missing. No. There's nothing to report. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. The, de- the city's defense, salvation and praise. Look what it says. Neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. That's the city's defenses. That's how they defend themselves with salvation and praise. Why is that important to you? Because that's your best defense. Your salvation. And praise. What's attacking you? What's disturbing you? What's robbing you of peace and joy? What's intimidating you? What's insulting you? What's creating in your heart such fear and such manipulation you know what your best defense is I'm saved I'm afraid to die why you're going to heaven I'm afraid to live why for you to live is Christ and to die is gain I'm sad I'm depressed I'm this I'm that we all have moments of Weakness, and we all have moments of pain, and we all have moments of sorrow. But what is your best defense? Salvation and praise. And look what it says in verse 19 The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be an, an everlasting light, and your God read it. Your glory. Oh, there's that word again. By the way, does that sound familiar to you? It should because it's in the book of Revelation. Remember, that's what happens in Messiah's kingdom. The sun is the source of light. Now the source of light is God's glory. How do we grasp this glory? How do we even imagine a being so full of glory and so full of light? His very presence provides all the light that a city could ever see. Is this a metaphor? It might be. But minimum, it's telling you that when Jesus shows up, you'll never look at the sun again the same way. You'll never look at the moon again the same way. You'll never look at the stars the same way. You look at the sun, you look at the moon, you look at the stars, you see Jesus. And everything is different. In verse 20, it says, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your mourning shall be ended. The city's perfection and joy spreads to all of the citizens. Then it spreads to the world. In other words, the presence of Messiah creates a utopia. The presence of the Savior, the Redeemer, the kingdom, and it becomes a kingdom of no mores. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And look what it says in verse 21. Also, your people shall be righteous. You should underline that. Your people will be righteous. Well, what good is it to live in a utopia if you're there? Because you'll be different. You'll be changed. You know what makes a person righteous? It's having a right relationship with God in Christ. You're accepted forever. 
Your people shall all be righteous. And look what it says. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting. The work of my hands that I may be glorified. A perfect place with imperfect people would not be a perfect place. A perfect place requires perfect people. And look look, look why the, the Lord does it. So that your husband can put up with you. So that your wife can put up with you. So you can stand to be there. It's so that the Lord will be glorified. Now, I want you to think about this very carefully. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God's plan is to mold you and shape you and make you like Jesus. And he will accomplish his goal because he's going to do it to glorify himself. Oddly enough, this might sound very strange to you, but he's going to do it not so much for your sake, but for his sake. The Lord's glory is clearly seen in his ability to save and secure and care for the people, the survival of Israel, the growth of the nation that faces the world of hostility. And look what it says in verse 22. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. In other words, here's the, 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 the statement. How is it possible that something or someone so small can become so great? The smallest family will multiply into a great clan. My wife loves to watch that show about, the tw- not the twins. How, how many are there? Babies? Five? Six babies. Some of you know that then. Yeah, here's this mom and this dad with six kids, and you think. And twins, right? They have six kids and twins. Seven. That's eight kids. And it's just a miracle how they manage to survive. But guess what? In this kingdom, the smallest family becomes like a tribe. The person who's now small will have a multitude of descendants. God determines the time. The work of God may seem slow to us. But look what it says. He will hasten it in its time. When everything's right. And when everything's perfect. The Lord will make it happen. God is at work in your life. And I know sometimes it doesn't seem that way. He's at work in your life. He's changing your heart and He's changing your thinking. He's changing the way you respond in friendships and relationship with each other. He's, he's working on how you deal with sorrow and pain and with disappointment and tragedy. He's working on you. He's changing you. He's at work with you. We're going to have communion in just a moment. And I'm going to have Isaac come up and, and, and the guys who are going to be distributing the communion. God is at work. And while we're having communion, what I want you to do is to pray and to consider what God is doing in your life. The work has begun and the work continues. And while we worship the Lord and we distribute the elements, all I ask is that you just... All hold it together until we have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you, you make promises and you keep your promises. Lord, we know that Isaiah is a book about redemption that's promised and then a redemption that's provided and then a redemption that's realized. Lord, you made good on your promise in the person of Jesus. And Lord, as we gather here this evening and we we do what is our custom to do. Lord, I pray that you would create within us a culture, a language, a way of doing things that's honoring and pleasing to you. That, That our culture includes forgiveness and restoration. Ours is a culture of mercy and deference. Ours is a culture of humility. 
Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would reveal the circumstances of our heart. Lord, we pray that you would point those areas of disappointment and even sin and that, Lord, you would root them out. Lord, we pray that we could confess our sin and forsake our sin. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we receive communion and that, Lord, we would receive nourishment and sustenance from the reality of a Savior who has redeemed us and forgiven us and reconciled us to you and that we can walk in that forgiveness and that joy. In Jesus' name, amen.